0: Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful that we have you to come to and Difficult and challenging times, as well as in good times. And Father, we're thankful for your grace that provides us with everything we need and gives us the information we need that we can uh, process what goes on around us in the world and that we can understand the dynamics of our own spiritual life. And Father, as we look out on the world situation today with various uh, threats of diseases and epidemics and wards. We know that, that life has never been stable, life has never been secure, that's simply an illusion, and that the only source of stability is you. It is you that are our rock, you are our fortress, you are our foundation, you are our shield and our buckler. And Father, we are so grateful that we have you to rest in, that no matter what transpires and what happens, we can relax in you and we can engage the world around us in terms of the mission that you have given us, just as Paul describes it in this chapter in Romans as he closes out this letter. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we're studying this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 15. While you're turning there, I want to comment on some things that are going on in the national news. Most significant, of course, is this uh, case of Ebola in, in Dallas. I think that as believers, we really need to think through how we're going to respond if this gets out of control. I've read a number of things recently, and the possibility of this really getting out of control is, is not very distant. We think that we have things under control. We as a generation... Have uh, been really blessed in this country with an incredible amount of health. My mother was a victim of the polio epidemic in 1952, which was centered here in Harris County. Prior to that, going back into the early part of the 20th century, there would be these uh, these periodic outbreaks of polio that just put fear into the nation, and people were scared to death to let their kids go outside to go to the swimming pool to go in any kind of gathering when, when these epidemics occurred. We've never, most of us have never had to live with that. You go back to 1918 and the flu epidemic. The other night I misspoke. I thought it was about 18 million, but the no, number of deaths worldwide were between 50 and 100 million. It ravaged the trenches of World War One. We've never seen anything like this. Uh, if you are not familiar with Ebola, A book I would recommend is a book that came out in the mid-90s called The Hot Zone. Many of us read The Hot Zone back when it first came out, and one of the people mentioned in there was a Colonel David Franz, who at the time was the director of the of USAMRID, the United States Army Medical Research and Infectious Disease uh, Institute, Institute in Infectious Disease in Frederick, Maryland. And this, he's got a fascinating testimony because when he was a college student, I think in Kansas, I don't know if it was University of Kansas or Kansas State, but one of them, uh, he, had, he had grown up as a Mennonite, a pacifist Mennonite. And he got a hold of a book called Freedom Through Military Victory. And that changed his life. I, I printed it. I guess it didn't work. I, I sent it. Okay, um, and that changed his life, and he, so he rose to be a full colonel in the in the army, and he was the director of USAMRED. And in 1998, right after I'd gone to Preston City, went down to uh, Pam, and I went down to visit uh, Dan Ingram in Washington D.C., and Colonel France gave the three of us a personal tour for two or three hours through the hot zone, through everything, and then took us into one of the briefing rooms. Because he had been in charge of the, uh, the, the teams that went in to dismantle the biological and chemical warfare stuff of Saddam Hussein after the First War. And he gave us the same briefing he gave to Congress, minus whatever was, uh, top secret that he couldn't communicate. And that was absolutely fascinating. Uh, the movie that Dustin Hoffman and Rene Rousseau were in in the late 90s called Outbreak was based loosely on that book but what the predictions were in that book and in the film very much fit the scenario that we're seeing right now is there's an outbreak of ebola in africa somebody's exposed they get on an airplane they come to the united states dozens of people become exposed and infected and you can just have a a, a, you know a a pandemic that occurs and this is uh, something we have to think about I don't know if that's what's going to happen. I'm not saying this to be a gloom and doomer. I'm saying this because, A, this is a real threat to the world. And it, and I have no confidence whatsoever in civil servants and bureaucrats, which is what the Center for Disease Control is. Maybe they can get a handle on this. I'm reading some things that they've really dropped the ball numerous times already. We need to be prepared in our souls and we need to be prepared in other ways to face whatever threats may come. Uh, I don't mean that we should be survivalists or preppers or any of that, the extreme stuff, but we just need to be thoughtful and aware of what's going on around. And when th- if this goes beyond this one case, the fear that will hit people is going to give us a wonderful opportunity to communicate the gospel. And it's going to give us a wonderful opportunity to remain calm and remain stable in the midst of panic and in the midst of, of people who are scared to death because suddenly their the, the whole fantasy of a stable, secure world uh will have disappeared. Let me try this print job one more time and then I'm gonna get started in our in our class. Okay, shows that it's there. I don't think it shows it. Laura, go tell him it's not connected for some reason. It's not working. Okay. What we're looking at in Romans is a conclusion. Last time I started the first part of it. Now, as I'm going through the conclusion, the conclusion, if you look at the text in front of you, starts in verse 14 and goes down to verse 33. What I'm focusing on is some key things that show up in the introduction and are parallel to what Paul goes back to in the conclusion like any good piece of literature. I'm not going through this section at this point verse by verse, although I'm doing some spot exegesis on some key passages because there are some important things that that run through this, this particular section. One of those is the gospel. Just look at your Bible with me for a minute. In verse 16, Paul says that I may be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel. You ought to underline the gospel every time it occurs in this section. In verse 19, he says, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. In verse 20, he says, and so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, But in new places, in verse 25, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, using a different word. Verse 29, he comes down and says, But I knew that when I came to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. The Gospels mentioned so many times in verses 14 to 33 that that's a major theme that that Paul is reminding us of. So as we come into this conclusion, the thing I pointed out last time is that like Paul, we should have serving the gospel as the central priority of life. He emphasized this in the f- opening chapters. Just to review, he said he was separated to the gospel of God in Romans one. One nine, he came to serve with my spirit, the gospel of his son. Romans one fifteen, I'm ready to preach the gospel, and finally one sixteen, a verse that many of you should have memorized. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then I went through the verses at the end, like I that I just read where he emphasizes the gospel. One I didn't mention was on into the uh, closing words, the final benediction, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ in 1625. So I looked at this last time, and one of the important things that come out of this that's easy to miss is a series of words that are used that have this overtone of service of a priest. And, and b- the bottom line is, Paul is viewing his ministry as an apostle as a priestly ministry serving the people with reference to the gospel. We have words like uh, the verb latruo, which means to serve. A lot of people miss this point. It's the, the fact that these words are used in, in a cluster and not just individually, and they'll focus on the word service but it's a worshipful service. This is a word that would commonly be used to describe the, the worship of a priest in the uh, tabernacle or in the temple. Romans 1.25 uses that same word again uh, in terms of the idolatry of those who have rejected God, that they serve the crea- uh, creature rather than the creator. We see this same these same words again in Romans 12:1 as Paul sets up the theme for the last part of Romans that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. There's that word sacrifice. It shows up again in 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 verse 16 in terms of, in our, our parallel word the word offering shows up in verse 16 again indicating this this aspect of worship that is behind this and that. By presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. There's that word litruo again. It's used again by Paul in 1516 that our parallel word is used like turgos, where we get our word liturgy, like turgos. It's not just someone who's being a servant, but it's always used within some sort of relationship to God. It's used of the Lord Jesus Christ as a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. It's used of Epaphroditus' uh, ministry to Paul in Philippians 2.25. And it's also used in Romans chapter 13 to refer to the government authorities as as a minister of God. So it's always in that context of somehow serving God in relation to this kind, kind of ministry. In our passage in Romans 15:16, Paul uses the term "minister of Jesus Christ" (leitourgos), clustered with the next word "ministering." See, we use the same English word there to translate two completely different Greek words, and I always am critical of that by translators because the concepts that are represented in the Greek are not identical to the English word "minister" and but there's, a, there's this connection. The second word, ministering, is that Greek word, herugeo, uh, which means to serve as a priest. So we lose the sense of that meaning by translating it with the English word ministry. Then it uses the word offering, prosphora uh, in verse 16, the offering, uh, Paul says, ministering the gospel of God. So he is serving as a, as a priest In his proclamation of the gospel, he is serving people. Remember, you have two basic roles in the Old Testament. A prophet represented God to man, and a priest represented the people to God. The priest is the one who would come into the tabernacle or into the temple and present offerings. He is the one that, that even though priests were often responsible for teaching Torah to, to to the Jews in the Old Testament... It was so that they could have acceptable worship to God, so that uh, Paul says his ministry of the Gospel of God, primarily focusing on the Gentiles, that the offering of the Gentiles, that is as they offered their lives, have to understand that in terms of romans twelve two presenting their lives as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, so that offering that it might be acceptable to God, why because it is set apart or sanctified. By God the Holy Spirit. That's one of the major themes in this section is the emphasis on God the Holy Spirit. Prosphora as an offering term was used to describe the work of Christ on the cross, that He loved us and gave Himself for us as an offering and sacrifice that uses both the word prosphora that's used here in uh, verse sixteen and the word Thusia, I believe, for sacrifice in Ephesians five two. So this gets us down to that last word, uh, or uh, last couple of words, acceptable. It's a different word from the word that's used in uh, Revelation 12:2, where we're told th- that that we may offer ourselves living sacrifice unto God, showing that His will is good and acceptable and perfect. So it's a synonym, though, showing that. Uh, that the offering of the Gentiles might be pleasant or welcomed by God. It's done in the right way for the right purposes, walking in fellowship, sanctified, having been sanctified by God, the Holy Spirit. And the word there is hagiazo, but again, the grammar is important. It is a perfect tense uh, participle, indicating something that had been accomplished and completely accomplished in the past with ongoing results, so a perfect tense verb, whether it's a participle or whether it's a verb, emphasizes the present results of a completed past action, and that completed past action would have reference to positional identification with Christ at the cross, which we call positional sanctification. And one other thing I want to point out in looking at fifteen sixteen before we go on to the second area of comparison is that Paul emphasizes that his focus is to serve in this priestly way the gospel of God. Now, that's really important because, as I pointed out, the word there uh, for minister in the first case that I might be a minister is that word liturgos, which is where we get our word liturgy but he's not relating this priestly service to some sort of liturgy. If you've grown up in a Roman Catholic church or in an Episcopal church or in a high Presbyterian church, any form of high worship where you go through regular liturgy in, in any church, we have more of an informal liturgy on Sunday morning. We go through a pattern that's similar every every Sunday. But in in high churches, they'll repeat the Apostles' Creed, are the Nicene Creed. They will sing the Gloria Patri and the doxology and three or four other things. And often they have, uh, they follow the so-called Christian calendar uh, throughout the year and at different kinds of the year. They'll change the colors of all the vestments up on the platform and different things like that. That's a liturgical church. But Paul isn't talking about serving as a priest in terms of liturgy, in terms of the kind of offering of sacrifices and things in the tabernacle or temple it's all oriented to his operation as and function as a one, as one who proclaimed the gospel that's a function of our priesthood every one of us is a priest we are a believer priest and part of our function as a priest is to offer ourselves as the living sacrifice completely focused and dedicated to the mission that Jesus gave, which is called the Great Commission, which is that we are to make disciples. That's not something that is focused on pastors or evangelists or in the early church just apostles and prophets. Everyone is included in that. That is a mission given to everyone. And where you fit within that that ministry will differ depending upon your spiritual gift and depending upon the circumstances in your local church, wherever that may be. So we serve the gospel in different ways. Some people are involved in gifts of helps. Some people are involved in gifts of administration. Others are involved because of gifts of, of, of giving. But in some way, at a personal level, we should all also be involved in getting involved in evangelism. I've often thought about different ways that we can develop uh, an evangelistic outreach into community. And I think that I've been uh, intrigued by one that Brett Nasworth's church developed down in Brownsville. And I've been hearing from different churches who've adopted that. And that's a preview of coming attractions uh, after uh, after we get past uh, my Israel trip and then Christmas and Everything. When we get into the winter, we'll be looking around at different things, and uh, I think this has some great possibilities. And it will certainly be a challenge to people. Not a tough challenge. It's a pretty simple way, and I, I like it. So we'll get we'll focus on that. But the principle here of application that we should see is like Paul: our f- the focus of our life should be on the gospel. We should be thinking all the time about how we can turn certain circumstances and conversations to the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily with some people that it's an overt gospel conversation. Sometimes you're just putting a thought out there for people. Sometimes you're just challenging their uh, pagan presuppositions. It all depends on understanding and knowing the, the individual and how to get them to think about spiritual things by the questions that we ask. I find that one of my biggest problems and the biggest problems with a lot of people who know a lot about the Bible is that we want to start correcting people's misconceptions right off the bat and straighten them out without giving them the opportunity to think through the path from where they are to understanding the gospel. And we jump in there way too soon, in my opinion, in telling people what they ought to be doing without leading them so that they come to those conclusions on their own as a result of some of the questions that we ask. So when we look at the gospel, the phrase gospel of God here, I just want to go through a series of points to help us understand with clarity what the gospel is. First of all, the phrase of God... The phrase of God tells us that the source of the gospel is God. Of God indicates source. It indicates its origin. It indicates that God is the one who came up with and designed the gospel in eternity past. Before God ever created anything in his omniscience, he already knew all of the knowable. And so when we think and talk about what God knew in eternity past... We think and communicate this in a logical sense, but not a chronological sense, because God has always known everything. He's never learned anything. He's never forgotten anything. All of his knowledge is direct and intuitive, whereas all of ours is learned and progressive. So as Isaiah said, his, our knowledge is not like his knowledge at all. So he designed the gospel plan in eternity past, understanding the problem of sin and all of the different aspects of the problem of sin that would have to be solved by him because man, the fallen creature, would not be able to do it. So the gospel comes from God. He is the only one who can uh, apply the gospel ultimately in terms of bringing people to salvation. Second, the gospel is good news. That's the meaning of the word, evangelion. The EV, or as it's written, EU, but the upsilon is usually pronounced in Greek like it's a V. That's why when it comes from, you would hear some people pronounce it uangelion but the Greeks pronounce it evangelion, which is why we get our English word evangelism. It comes; It's just a term borrowed straight straight from the Greek. And it means good news. That EU prefix always indicates something that is good and positive. So if you're going to say something, that would be a saying, or you, you say something, the verb would be legeo. And if you're going to say something good, it would be a, Eulogeo or a eulogy. That's how that prefix works and it comes over in many different words in English. So the gospel is good news. It's something we should be excited about. Too often Christians are fearful. They're afraid of rejection. People, God, You're not being rejected. God is the one who's being rejected in a gospel presentation. Too often people are fearful that they will say something or do something and then that will... Uh, create a problem, so the Gospel is good news for everyone, Jew and Gentile, and specifically in the context of passages like Romans eleven and in this passage where paul 's talking about Jew and Gentile, other passages such as Ephesians chapter two, the issue is that the Gospel is for everyone. Jews had a problem with that because many of them thought that the Messiah was coming only for Israel, only for the Jews. But Messiah was coming for everyone, Jew first and also the Greek or also the Gentile. And so we need to understand that God provided his salvation for all mankind. And what, the, what I mean by that on the screen, when I've underlined those terms without exception and without distinction, let me, these are theological terms that you might hear. You would hear a, a five-point Calvinist, usually the fifth point that people talk about is really the l in the middle of tulip remember the calvinist uh, calvinist theology is summarized as as an acronym of tulip total inability uh, unconditional election limited atonement irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints it's that l in the middle that is usually what's referred to as the fifth point and uh, because calvinists are often split between moderate calvinists who believe in four-point Calvinism or maybe three-point Calvinism, the issues there would be on limited versus unlimited atonement and maybe maybe how they understand election. But your five-point Calvinists would say that in defining limited atonement, that Christ died for all. When the scriptures say that Jesus died for all, it means that Jesus died for all without without distinction. What they mean by that is he died for Jew and Gentile. And so they will teach that when you read in the Scripture that Christ died for all, what those passages mean is he died for Jews and he died for Gentiles. He died for all without distinction. In unlimited atonement, they will say, no, Jesus died for all without exception. He died for every single human being without exception. To make it clear, I like to use both terms and say Jesus died for all without exception and without distinction. There's no one that was left out. But there's always a challenge for people of understanding unlimited atonement. If Christ actually died as a substitute for someone who is an unbeliever, why, why is it and how is it that they end up in the lake of fire if Jesus paid the penalty for their sin? If Jesus really did that, now I remember when I was uh, contemplating going to Dallas Seminary, I went up there to visit a close friend of mine who had become converted to five, I didn't know this, he had become converted to five-point Calvinism as a student at Dallas as a result of the uh, teaching of uh, S. Lewis Johnson, a well-known professor at Dallas Seminary, and his name was Randy Price. Randy's still a five-point Calvinist. And nothing's going to probably ever, ever change that. And he brought to my attention this one theological problem, that if Jesus died as an actual real substitute, then how is it that they are, that anyone is lost, if Jesus truly died as their substitute and paid for their sins? That was a good question. I've thought, thought that through over the years and actually came up with what is a good uh, answer for that. The good news is that Christ paid the penalty freeing every person from the sin penalty. There are actually three problems that people have. First of all, we're all born spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that we're born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are spiritually dead. There is a, an aspect of our immaterial being that cannot have a relationship with God. Second, we're told that we are born lacking perfect righteousness. Only a creature with perfect righteousness can have fellowship with a God of perfect righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And third, we're born under the condemnation of Adam's original sin. Because we're born under that condemnation, that penalty for that sin has to be paid for. So Christ paid the penalty for the condemnation, but even though the penalty for every unbeliever is paid for, he still has the first two problems. Jesus just solved the third problem, but his death provides the basis for solving the first two problems. The first problem is we're born spiritually dead. Jesus may have paid my eternal penalty for being condemned under Adam's original sin at the cross, but I'm still born spiritually dead, number one. Number two, I'm still born without righteousness. You're born without righteousness. We are born in a state of spiritual death and unrighteousness, and that has nothing to do with the penalty for sin, which was Adam's original sin, which Christ paid for. The only way to have uh, the spiritual death problem solved and the righteousness problem solved is for us to trust in Christ. We'll get there in point five. Point four, Christ's payment of the penalty doesn't save us or give us righteousness or impart life. It paid the penalty for sin, the judicial penalty for sin on the cross. So fifth, only by trusting Christ do we then receive spiritual life and perfect righteousness. Christ died for all. He paid this sin penalty for all, but that only solved one of the three problems. The other two problems get solved when we make a a volitional decision to trust in Christ, and at that instant, his death is applied to us, and we are born again, that's given spiritual life, and we are justified. That's the issue with perfect righteousness. So under point six... At the instant of faith alone, in Christ alone, we are positionally, that means legally, totally forgiven of all sin. It's wiped out personally. Now, we've studied this in Colossians 2:10 through 12 in the past, that when Christ died on the cross, the certificate of our sin, that, that death penalty, was nailed to the cross and was wiped out but it's still left the, we're still left being spiritually dead and unjustified. So we receive a new human spirit instantly at the point of salvation. We're regenerated. We're made a new creature in Christ at that instant. God regenerates that human spirit, that aspect of our soul that enables us to have a relationship with him that is given birth to at that point, and that is called regeneration. Second... And I think this is the logical order. It all happens simultaneously and and instantly. Second, in the logical order, that new human spirit receives the imputation of Christ's righteousness. God doesn't save us because he sees anything good in us, but because at the instant that Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to us, is, is imputed to us, God looks on us as possessing that perfect righteousness. And third, he declares us then to be righteous. And we are then given eternal life. So all of that happens instantly. Christ died for our sins. That's unlimited atonement. But its application in terms of regeneration and justification is limited by individual volition. So unlimited atonement is not universalism, which is what this Calvinist argument attempts to show, is if you're really consistent and Christ actually died as a substitute, then everybody ought to go to heaven. And that's a theological trap that many people got caught up with for many centuries. But it's not true because you have to understand there's an objective payment of the penalty, which is for all, and a subjective application, which is, has to do with regeneration, imputation, and justification. So that's the gospel. That's why it's, it's not based at all on how we live before we're saved, or what we do before we're saved, or how we live after we're saved, or what we do after we're saved. It's based upon one decision, to trust in Christ alone for salvation. And the instant that we do that, then we're regenerate and all of this is irreversible. We are secured forever. Now, another thing that Paul says that in one of these verses I want to go back to in verse 19 is that Paul relates to his his own ministry. This is in verses 18 and 19. He says, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me. We have a lot of personal issues in our lives that are really irrelevant in terms of eternity. We spend a lot of time talking with other people about our kids, about our parents, about our hobbies, about all kinds of things. If we're really engaged with people, we spend time talking about things that really matter, religion, their view of God, and politics. Everything else is really irrelevant. Paul puts it in perspective here and says... If it doesn't have anything to do with what, what Christ has accomplished through me, it's not worth talking about. It's, he's not a master of small talk. So if he says, I will not dare speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient, focusing on his ministry to the Gentiles, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit, or by, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, a couple of things we need to observe here. First of all, is a little map work. And here's a map of the Roman Empire. It shows the division that occurred later in history, but the regions and the provinces are basically the same. And what we see here is uh Israel, Judea is located down here, here's Jerusalem, and as Paul was on his missionary journeys, the first missionary journey basically covered this area in southern uh, Turkey, what is now southern Turkey, the second missionary journey took him across uh, Turkey, he was not allowed by the Holy Spirit to go into Asia, crossed over, went to Philippi, came down through Thessalonica to Athens and to Corinth, and then... Uh, came back home, and on the third missionary journey, he retraced uh, those steps. But he apparently, in covering uh, the area when he's in uh, Macedonia, he was involved in sending out people that took the gospel into Illyricum. The green-shaded area here is a province that wraps around the northern part uh, of Italy, and it would have included areas of uh, Yugoslavia, the old Yugoslavia, and going up into areas of uh, uh, Switzerland and even into southeastern France. That would have all been part of Illyricum. He's probably talking about just coming to the area here uh, in the easternmost border of Illyricum. So he's taken the gospel there, and he's saying that his gospel has been confirmed. By signs and wonders. That's a term that uh, refers to performing miracles, especially sign miracles, which would substantiate his claim to be an apostle. (coughs) In 2 Corinthians (coughs) Corinthians 12.12, we read, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So apostolic ministry now that's not restricted to just the twelve, the eleven plus Paul, but their associates, like Stephen and uh, philip in in Jerusalem in the early part of acts they were they were uh, serving with the apostles, and so their signs and wonders confirmed that apostolic ministry ephesians uh, uh, Two twenty talks about the fact that the prophets and the apostles are the foundation of the church. So, the, how would you know? What? How are you going to confirm that somebody is an apostle, somebody who they claim to be? Then it would be through these uh, signs and wonders. In the eighties, <clears throat> there was a development of a new, uh, new. Trend in the charismatic movement that was called the Signs and Wonders movement. It was started by a, a pastor and part time or adjunct faculty member at Fuller Seminary by the name of John Wimber. And it was also called uh, Power Evangelism because Wimber said that it's not really evangelism unless you have it confirmed with Signs and Wonders. And it real but but what was different from the charismatic movement is they de-emphasized tongues, but they emphasized miracles and casting out demons and many other other strange things. Uh, misunderstanding the point that signs and wonders were not given to convince people uh, as, as an unerring uh, as an unerring way of convincing people of the truth of the gospel. The gospel of John is written around these eight signs that John emphasizes in giving the gospel. But many people have rejected the gospel of John. Uh, Jesus performed many signs and wonders and people rejected his claim to be the Messiah. Paul performed many signs and wonders and people rejected the gospel. Just because signs and wonders were there... Doesn't mean that that guaranteed that people would believe in the gospel. That was the mistake in the whole signs and wonders move. These things were aberrations in the in the late 70s. They got a lot of uh, uh, play in the 80s because there were some well-known uh, pastors, uh, professors at Dallas Seminary who got caught up with this. There were others who kind of kept their head under the ground. One of the most well-known Calvinist preachers in America. Who's recently retired by the name of John Piper was a. Well, most people didn't know this, but he was in, into this whole signs and wonders thing. His entire ministry, he just didn't emphasize it like others did. Uh, the uh, uh, um, others who are involved at uh, uh, Arizona or, or Phoenix Theological Seminary, whether Wayne Grudem, whose systematic theology is highly touted among evangelicals today. Is uh, caught up in the signs and wonders movement and has been since I studied it back in the mid 80s. And so this has entered mainstream evangelicalism today. We see these uh, generic evangelical churches spring up all over everywhere and they have huge numbers of people. I always wonder where do they advertise? Where do they get all of their money? I have no idea. But this is part and parcel of the modern. Young evangelical movement is that anybody who questions the continuation of the sign gifts or signs and wonders is just uh, they're being arbitrarily dogmatic, and there's no basis in the scripture for that that is because many young Christians are still thinking in terms of the moral rel- or the, the the philosophical relativism and theological relativism of postmodernism. And they don't want dogmatism at all from the Scripture. They want to sit down and and talk about the five different views of that or the three different views of that where nobody ever really comes to any kind of definite conclusion. But God intended to communicate something, not many different ideas. He intended to communicate one and only one thing, and we have to discern that from the text through a study and exegesis of the text and come to a conclusion of what the text says and what it doesn't say. And people who say, well, you're just being too dogmatic are operating like a postmodern pagan. And this is what's happened to the evangelical church over the last 40 years is that we have been infiltrated by believers who have not left their pagan thought modes at the door. They come in, they sit sit in the pews, they want to sing music, like they sing out in the world they want to conduct a church service with entertainment like they have out in the world they want to focus on how you evangelize people by using salesmanship techniques that they learned in the world not from the word of god so they do not want to hold to a hard and fast distinction between the human viewpoint techniques and modern techniques one of the great emphasis in learning biblical apologetics is to recognize that as a foundational principle is that you don't bring people to an understanding of the gospel of Christ by validating their assumptions about life. You validate their assumptions about music, and you sing the same kind of music they do how are you going to give them an unadulterated gospel that you've already perverted by your compromise by by affirming their pagan assumptions on music or their pagan assumptions on morality or their pagan assumptions that this is how you grow an organization. You grow it by having entertainment. You grow it by providing what people want. If you provide what people want, of course you're going to build a a summit-sized church, but you're never going to be teaching people the Bible, and there's going to be a difference. When you are biblical from your presuppositions all the way up, you're not going to build a very big church because people today don't want that big of a change. They want to make sure they're going to go to heaven, but they don't want to have it disrupt the pattern of their life too much. So, this has always been a, a problem that we 're facing. Paul faced it all of the time, and he fully he says in verse nineteen fully preached the gospel. Now, what that means it's our it 's a familiar word play Rao. this is the same word that 's used in ephesians five eighteen as we'll we 'll see a little bit later on. It means to complete something or to fulfill something. And it's, you are to fill something up. Here it has that idea of completing something. It's a perfect active infinitive. Once again, we're back here dealing with grammar. Perfect tense means what kind of action? Completed action. So he said he's completed the action related to the gospel. Now this is usually translated something like, I have fully preached the gospel. In that English translation, the word preach is translated as, in English, is presented as a verb, a past tense verb. There's no verb for that in the Greek. There is the word the gospel, ta evangelion, but there's no word for preach. It's I have completely fulfilled the gospel. The noun evangelion is in the accusative case indicating it's the object of the verb I have completed. What has he completed? The gospel. And that would assume the word ministry. That's why I put that in brackets there in the box to indicate that what Paul is saying here is that he has fulfilled the great commission. He has proclaimed the gospel. He has taken the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. He is going out and taking the gospel uh, around the world. So in that sense, he has completed the gospel of Christ. Now, that's all related to that first point of similarity between Paul's introduction and his conclusion, his emphasis on the gospel. The others are not as involved or as long. The second thing, he commends his recipients. In Romans 1.8, in the introduction, he says, First of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. He says something very similar to the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians one nine. He is thinking thankful to God that they are acting or living out their faith. So the word faith can mean a couple of different things. It has the idea of of, a, of naming or identifying our trust in God at the gospel. Second meaning is it identifies the content of what we believe. Sometimes we talk about a person's faith. They're Christian, they're Jewish, they're Presbyterian or Methodist or Presbo-Methodist, Bacterian or whatever they are. Uh, your faith, the content of your faith is spoken of throughout the world. And a third meaning is your out the outworking of your faith, your actions of believing, your tr- ongoing trust in God. And I believe that's what he's talking about here, that they have a reputation. These believers in Rome have a reputation like the Thessalonians. In First Thessalonians 1, 9, Paul says that their, the knowledge of their faith, the reputation of the way they trust in God has spread throughout all of Macedonia and all of Achaia. It's going out throughout the world. To the Romans, he says, your faith is spoken about. You have a reputation that has gone throughout the whole world. It has gone throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. So the emphasis here is on what we call the faith rest drill. Now, there are three components to the practice of the faith rest drill. We've gone over this uh, uh, somewhat. I'm recording a whole series on the faith rest drill That is part of the videos that you will be watching over the time that I'm in Israel and the time that I'm in Kiev in January, going through uh, verse by verse, promise by promise, how we use the faith rest drill. First of all, we mix faith with the promises of God. In Hebrews 4.2, the writer of Hebrews says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. So us means first century Christians. To them, he's talking about the Old Testament uh, believers, the wilderness generation that left Egypt in the Exodus. By the way, did you know that there's a new movie coming out? Exodus, gods, what is it? Gods and prophets, gods and kings, gods and kings. And it's it's supposed to be quite interesting. I saw the preview last night. That's just a... Coming, comes out Christmas. So everybody needs to read Exodus between now and then, five or six or ten times. And then when you go to the movie, see who can come up with the most biblical discrepancies. See, that's how you engage your mind and you just don't suck it in, but you think critically about the film. So it should be a fascinating, interesting film. I still can't get past Charlton Heston. I don't know if I ever will for me, to me. He epitomized Moses. Okay, so the writer of Hebrews is saying, indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them in the Old Testament. Now, when did you ever see a reference to the gospel in the Old Testament? Can anybody give me a chapter and verse for the gospel in the Old Testament? No one. It's because it's not stated that way in the Old Testament. But the writer of Hebrews, under inspiration of Scripture, says that they had the gospel in the Old Testament to believe. But when you read the Old Testament, you don't find it. That doesn't mean it wasn't there. It's that a lot was known and a lot was going on in the Old Testament that God didn't see fit to tell us about in Scripture. But in Hebrews, we learn that, yes, the gospel was preached to them, but the word which they heard... That's the message of the gospel, did not profit them. They were believers, that wilderness generation were believers, but they were disobedient to the message proclaimed to them while they were in the wilderness. They failed to trust in God to, take, uh, to go into the land and to uh, take it away from the Canaanites, and so they had to go through 40 years of, of wandering in, in the desert in the wilderness of Zen. Uh, we're going to go to the wilderness of Zen when we go to on our Israel trip in about a month, and we're going to see just how barren that, that area is that they wandered through for those 40 years. The writer of Hebrews says, the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. That's the key phrase. They didn't believe it. That's what that phrase mixed with faith means. They, you have to believe What the word of God says and believe it is true. So the first stage is what we do is we think about a verse that we know or part of a verse that we know and we wrap our mental arms around that and we grab it and we're going to say, God, this is a principle promise that you've given me. Here's what you said. I'm claiming this for you to fulfill this promise. We don't just claim an abstract principle, God, somewhere, I think it means this, I heard somebody say that, I heard some preacher say that. That's not what Jesus did in the wilderness. He quoted Scripture verbatim against the temptations and the attacks of Satan. So we mix faith with the promises of Scripture. We need to memorize Scripture. Second, we need to understand the embedded reasoning contained within the promise For example, one you've heard from me many, many times is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Now there's three commands there, to trust, to lean not, and to acknowledge. And then there's a conclusion. So how do those three commands relate to each other? The first command is that we're to trust in the Lord completely or totally with our whole being, our whole heart. Second, we're not to lean on our own understanding. That, that is set as complete opposites. It's not, I'm going to trust in the Lord, but I've got to think through this and figure it out on my own as well. No, it's, it's, we have to base our thinking completely and exclusively upon God because he knows all the issues. We don't. Now, when you're making tough decisions with relation to career, relation to uh, life, uh, we have to think through those issues. But we think those through and we say, Lord, I'm trusting you. I don't know all the data here, but I'm trusting you to guide and direct me. I will make the best decision I can based on the data that I have in front of me. And I used to pray this all the time, Lord, just keep me from making a bad decision. Keep me from making a foolish decision. Keep me from making a decision that I'm going to regret down through the years. So we trust in the Lord. We don't lean on our own understanding, our own frame of reference. In all our ways, acknowledge Him and all your paths, put Him first. What's the conclusion? The conclusion is he will direct our paths, not necessarily overtly, where he's going to put traffic lights out in front of us, directing us to turn left here and turn right there, but that as we make those decisions, he's going to close and open doors and give us guidance and opportunities. And when we get done, we look back and we see how the Lord directed us down through the years. That's the third aspect. When we reach a conclusion then that stabilizes our emotions and stabilizes our soul. So Paul is praising them because of their faith. It's gone out. Now, in the conclusion, he does the same thing. In verse uh, 14 of chapter 15, he says, Now I myself am confident concerning you. He's still praising them. My brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf. Notice how positive he is towards them because they are moving forward spiritually. On in verse 14, it uses this idiom full of goodness. This is an, a descriptive term. They're good people in the sense of intrinsic goodness. It's describing their character. They're generous. They're kind. They are upright. Second, they are filled with all knowledge. There's our word plerao again. It's a perfect passive participle, meaning completed action. They've already been filled That uh, That is accomplished through the Holy Spirit. This is the same word used in Ephesians 5.18, where we're commanded to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. They have responded to that command, and they are full of knowledge from God the Holy Spirit. That's what he fills us with, is spiritual knowledge. And as a result, they are able to admonish one another. This is a Greek word, nutheteo. Nutheteo is an interesting term because it comes from the noun uh, nous, which means the mind. It has an element of instruction with it or teaching, but it also has an element of admonishment. It has the idea of addressing not only the intellect in terms of this is what you need to know or what you need to do, but also challenging their will and their emotions. It, it covers the meaning of the word covers a wide, uh, widespread. It has the idea of admonition, advice, warning, reminding someone of the truth, teaching in the sense of instruction. And then challenging them, spurring them on, uh, to correct behavior. So this is the result of someone who is spiritually, uh, spiritually mature. So they are filled with all goodness, and there's our word, nutheteo, to warn, admonish, advise, and reminding them. Next time we'll come back to the last, uh, four points where first of all will be Paul persevered in overcoming all the obstacles in getting to Rome. Rome was God's destiny for him. There are a lot of things God wants us to do. That doesn't mean it's easy to get there. And so he persevered in overcoming those obstacles to get to the goal. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening. And we pray that you challenge us with them and we continue to realize the tremendous need we have to learn to trust you to be, to train ourselves to constantly think about the circumstances around us in terms of divine viewpoint principles and scripture, claiming promises, memorizing scripture as we look at the things that go on around us today with the uh, ramping up of diseases, these various, uh, Uh, viruses that are going around uh, impacting children much like polio did in previous generations to the Ebola virus it is it's a it can be a very scary world out there but we have you to trust in and rely upon and there's nothing that is on the horizon that Christians haven't faced on the basis of your word time and time again throughout the generations and the centuries father we pray that we might be strong and firm in your word like the Romans were because of the way we have taken in your word and applied it in a rigorous manner day in and day out. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.